Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smorridge, and joining us are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. This is episode 21, where we'll be discussing lines 61 to 2 on the Shieldhau, the squinter, or the cockeyed strike. <laughs> We're recording this, straight up, this episode straight after the last one, so let's jump right in. Johanna, could you give, please give us uh, a German reading of these two lines? Yeah. Schild zu dem Ort und nimm den Hals ohne Facht. Schild zu dem Oben, Haupthänd willst du bedoben. Thank you very much. And Steve, could you give us Harry's translation? To the point the shield goes, take the neck boldly so. Drive the shielder high instead. Threaten then his hands and head. Thank you very much. I'm going to disagree with Harry's interpretation there, because I don't think either of those verses are intended to refer to the shield, huh? Objection noted. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Objection denied. The glosses for both of these involve doing the shield. Oh, it involves the shield, huh? but I think what it's referring to is looking, the looking part of both of these plays. But that's still shield. <laughs> is it, though? Yeah. Of course. I mean, would we, would we, should we start talking about any time your opponent is upset, calling him, talking about Zorn? Yes. <laughs> Why not? All right. I'm, I'm going to read the glosses so that the readers can make their own mind up. And I'm going to read the gloss from this like giant amalgamation text that Michael Chidester put together. So if there's any sections which are just missing, we can blame Chidester. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, squint to the point and take the neck without fear. Gloss, remember the side eye counters the long point with the deceit of the visage and also the guard that is called plow. Drive it like this. When you approach him with your onset, if he stands against you and holds the long point from extended arms against your face or breast, then stand with your left foot for and hold your sword on the right shoulder and cock your eye at his point and act as if you will hew there to his point but then hew strongly with the cockeyed strike onto his sword with your short edge, and with that, shoot the long point in towards his neck with the step forward of your right foot. That's 61. Right, next play, 62. Squint to the upper head if you will harm the hands. Gloss, remember this is another counter. When he stands against you in the long point, if you then want to strike over his hands, then cock your eye towards his head and act as if you will strike him there but instead strike him with the cockeye with your point on his hand. You may also do this when he wishes to hew a free strike in over you from above, so cock your eyes if you wish to strike his head, but instead hew against his strike with your short edge and strike onto his sword blade with your point down towards his hands. There we go. So it definitely seems to be a, a feint with looking, according to those that text. Yeah, which is interesting because I just never wrote that off last episode. Like that, personally. Well, so this is the <laughs> third like reference to, or the third way shield is used that I refer to as there's three different ways that this is discussed last episode. The first is a particular blade action. The second is uh, perceiving what they are doing, and then the third here is eye faints or body faints or whatever exactly is supposed to be going on in this. So. Meyer says First about one, this that it's really hard to explain in words, but super easy to demonstrate. So I'm curious mm -hmm. what he would have demonstrated. So, so the first ones, you 
make him think that you're going to go for a strong bind. So maybe that you're going to crimp against his long point, and instead you do a, a shield how into the body. Right. I would say no. That's nice tea. Thanks. <laughs> um, so the, but like more productively, the thing I'm, uh, the thing I would say it's looking at here is that you're acting like you're going to try and engage the point, which is probably potentially going to provoke or encourage them to try and do something very small with the point, like just a little tiny disengage. And then you instead act down on the main part of the blade and continue to the body from there. So it says, you know, uh, look at their point and act as if you'll hew the point, but then hew strongly with your blow onto their sword with the short edge. And with that, shoot the point into the neck, right? So you're acting like you're going to take the weak and instead engaging the strong. And there's a certain symmetry there with the next one in Danzig and Lev, where you're acting like you're going to go deep and then you go shallow instead. So oh, yeah. we have sort of both versions. But yeah, kind of from a practical-ish perspective, if you're, especially if somebody prefers to take very tight, uh, disengage-type actions, trying to provoke them by sort of threatening to engage just the point of their blade, and then instead of going a lot deeper, will often catch a blade that's trying to do something too small, basically. Sure. So what if, the per what if they do disengage against this? Then what happens? Well, that's a more interesting question. That is not covered by this play. Um, <laughs> what do you think, T? What do you think happens? Uh, I taught a, or I did a workshop at Longpoint about some of this stuff, actually. Um, in the Glasgow copy of Ringek, there's an illustration for this play, which could be interpreted as showing a very crossed sort of step. So the... Um, you're stepping kind of across and through with your uh, right foot. Like if you, if they're standing at 12 o'clock directly in front of you, then you're stepping to like 11 o'clock past them with the right. And if they've disengaged your blade, what that's going to do is it's going to be taking you behind their point and away from the direction they're moving their point in. Uh, which actually gives you a surprising amount of cover against a disengage if you lose the sword. I gotta, I gotta be honest. I, I need to be really at a loss for what to do if I'm gonna be looking at the uh, Glasgow pictures for advice. <laughs> That's fair. So, how would you handle this if they do disengage you? Well, I think a couple things. First, I think that this squinter needs to be very long, very long, shooting the point in, extended as much as you can type of action. Well, but that's not quite what it says. It says that you hew strongly onto his sword with the short edge, and then with that, you shoot the point long with a step of the right foot. So potentially this could be two stages. Uh, hew strong from the squinter with the short edge at the sword and shoot in the long point with it to the neck with a step forth your right foot. It sounds like it's all happening at the same time to me. Uh, I think you can read it either way, but fair enough. And I still think that doing it extended like that is hewing strong, especially if you were putting the strength of your sword, making contact onto their sword with the strength of your sword. That's fair. I could, I'd agree with that. Yeah. So basically, if you do that, then the disengage is going to have the same effect as if you're, like we talked about two episodes ago, 
they're not going to be able to reach you or they they're just not going to be able to disengage below but they might double you because fencing is messy so you know it might happen but ideally <laughs> it won't so let me let me ask you a follow-up question do you think how hard do you think you're hitting their sword to the side in this when you do the squinter because i have strong opinions about this Okay, so there's a right answer. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't think you're trying to... Like, I'm not going to say you're not trying to displace their blade, but I don't think the goal of what you're trying to do here is, like, percussively beat their sword. But rather, if you imagine the sort of the right angle line of maximum extension, you know, high distress of folks, you'll love this. That kind of line, right? Currently, their sword is on it, and you want your sword to be on it. And as long as you get your sword on it, you get the reach advantage that lets your thrust land. Yeah. But it's not about kind of smashing their sword. Yeah, it's not like <laughs> smashing their sword into, you know, the back of the tournament ring or something. It's just, I want my sword to be in the space that your sword is currently occupying. And I will force your sword out of that space in order to allow me to do that. Yeah. Yeah, the reason I have small or small, I have strong opinions on this, is because other uh, interpretations I've seen, and um, how I was originally taught this is that this, and in addition, the one against Flug is is like a beat. You're like hitting strongly against their sword to like smash them out of the way, and then you stab in. And I think if you do that. All that's going to happen is they're going to cut around and hit you because they're feeling hard pressure. So I like to do this more like, I guess, like Anton uh, Kotovich's idea of uh, quote unquote uh, foolinless, um, in that I like to have my opponent feel as little as possible when I'm kind of dropping onto their sword and shooting in. And it gets displaced just enough so that it doesn't stab me because that's all it needs to be moved. Yeah. There, there's an action in modern fencing known as a glissé or glissade, which slides along the blade into the target. And that could be a parallel for this. I think it's similar to that. But the idea is you engage on the blade and smoothly flow along into the... Right. I don't want to say it's 100%... Yeah the same because I don't know enough about it, but it's probably similar. Well, nothing ever is 100% the same, but part of the idea of that is that it's not so much creating a sudden, sharp impulse on the sword, but that you would sort of very gradually engage it, and by the time they realize they're being displaced, you've displaced it and are hitting. Yeah. Is that... So, is that like... Um, do you use that to, like throw the person's sword like offline? Do you use it as like a beat to to get them out of the way? Because like it's basically only an epic technique, so I've never been taught it. Um <laughs> uh, and it's barely even a technique in modern in high level epic anymore. Um okay. but a hundred fifty to hundred years ago it would be like their blade is extended in guard and you engage, you know, gently near the point and then smoothly extend your sword into the target while running it down their sword to push theirs offline and let yours come through. Yeah. 
maybe. Let's not talk <laughs> about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, uh, it's an interesting parallel. And if you do it just right, it can like, it becomes very difficult for somebody to feel that there's something problematic going on that they need to engage with until they've already been hit or are already completely compromised in position. Right. Yeah. Okay, can we talk about Steve's comment that squint to the point is the real shield helm? Yeah, defend that, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what gives it a real niche, doesn't it? Because we can, you know, we talked about like doing a shield how against a cut. And, you know, sure, it has some unique, like maybe mechanical, you know, advantages and things that other cuts don't have. But really, it, it, you don't, it's, it's not needed, you know, you can do everything you can do uh, with the shield how you can pretty much do with like Torn House and Spare House. Maybe you want to use a shield how because, you know, they're cool and they work very well. But this is where like the shield how is unique in that this is the one that counters long point. So what would happen if you tried to do a Zorn how in place of a shield how in this context? It would probably work. <laughs> I, I, never, I never get a chance to try that, but I often wonder I do. why I Shield do. How is better here than Zorn. I, yeah. I mean, I believe that it is because Zorn against Long Point is kind of dicey, but maybe yeah. it's not very good at it. Yeah, sometimes I, I do. Um, I'm, I guess I'm undermining my entire argument here, but like sometimes <laughs> against Long Point, I'll just like do. Uh, you know, a simple blade taking like you would with with this squint to the point, but with the long edge. And actually, one of something that I really like to do is I call it the uh, the tournament shield, the tournament flicky shield thingy, which is you only turn it halfway, so you're kind of engaging with the flat a little bit because it's easier than turning it the whole way to the short edge, and if they come up and block, then the they uh, if your blade is flexy enough, it might flex down and still plant in their in their uh, chest, and all the judges yeah, will see. Yeah, great for paddle mocks. Right. Yeah, and then all the judges will see is your point in their chest with a huge bend in the blade, and you'll get a lot of points for it. <laughs> and confirm. That sounds like control point for me. Four points red. Yep. <laughs> exactly. But at what point does that sort of slide, uh, sort of crossover with the old interpretations of absets, and it's just like a thrust in opposition? Well, it obviously can't be absets, because they aren't actually attacking yet. Um, is the obvious the obvious argument? That's true. Okay, <laughs> I think there's also um, in the in the zettle of the first play of this, right in the beginning of the shield how it says it breaks whatever buffalo strikes or stabs. So the stabbing is never actually addressed in the gloss, but you can kind of you know, if you if you reach a little bit with that, then you can say that this is supposed to be against someone stabbing into with like a long stab. So I would think that the shilhao against a buffalo's like thrust is somebody who's thrusting with the arms lagging back. 
uh, and then you can stop thrust into the into that shoulder area. Much like the, well, it's a parallel to the way I think that the cut in some ways is somebody springing forwards and trying to take over the cut and doing a big step and their sword maybe lagging a bit, and that gives you the opening to cut into the shoulder. If their thrust is like wound up, but they're you know it's got there's a big wind up in their thrust and their point and arms lag, you can get your stop thrust in first and lock them out with extension. Hmm. I suppose that's true. I've always thought of this, like this long point thing, as like extrapolating that to like it could also be done against somebody thrusting in. Yeah, essentially. Say someone's in flug and they extend and thrust straight in. At the point where they extend, it's basically just like doing it against long point. I was going to ask that. How do you is, do you see any difference between the, this and the counter to plow, which we did in the last episode or two episodes ago? Yeah, um, because plow turns into long point really fast if you wanted to. Yeah, is this sure. The same yeah, you know, you do the squinter against plow, which we talked about is uh, you don't have to engage the blade because they're shortened, which we talked about last episode. And I guess if they're extending. As you come in, then you'll engage the blade and do the current play that we're doing. So why don't you need a betrayal of the face to, to counter plow, and you do it to counter long point? Because the squinter breaks whatever a buffalo strikes or stabs. That's not an answer, and you know it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd get away with that. <laughs> because I think everybody who succeeds with this technique does it without these eye feints. So. Yeah. Why are they so prominently mentioned? I've got another question, which is if these are flip side of which, if these were, I think, plays, why would you need to be cutting with an inverted hand? Wouldn't you be able to just like I think and then attack deep? Potentially. Possibly you want the specific structural advantages of having the inverted hand, like the supination position. Yeah. Would be my not really an answer, but kind of an answer. Yeah, I mean if if you're if we're being real, like, yeah, you can do this with the long edge. There's nothing stopping you. There might be some advantages. There might but be some advantages. We can do it with the flat. Oh yeah. The well the flat's <laughs> the best for tournaments, yeah, for sure. The only disadvantage to the flat is if they step in and come closer and you end up hitting them on the head or on the shoulder, then you get a flat hit. But the judges can tell the difference. Yeah, the judges probably won't notice it anyway. So, so So one thing it sounds to me like we can just add this entire section to the Zornhow and forget about the shiller completely, right? (laughs) One thing I think that the um, uh, the supinated shield position gives you for this, which uh, long edge position doesn't, is it gives you a way to like. Your fully extended position with the point shooting out, there's more. Uh, this is really hard to explain in words. The if you think about like a sort of Zornhau position, your your edge and hilt are going to be pushing their point further to the side to get your point to full extension, unless you're breaking your wrist structure and kind of wrapping over. Whereas with the shield, you can have a very straight, stable wrist structure that provides a very limited displacement, but just enough to clear their point sideways. So you give them less of a pressure signal that you're clearing their blade and going to the target. Which I guess links back to what Steve was saying earlier. 
Yeah, um, I think another possible advantage is that if they end up parrying high, it's easier for you to lift up and uh, sink the point in. Yeah, you can go to the Shadowhawk play. Yeah, I've got um, one follow-up question, which is: so far, all of these Shadowhawk plays, I think, are from right from tag, the guard, cutting from the right. Yeah, There's the no guard. mention the guard. There's no mention anywhere of trying to do a Shadowhawk from the left, is there? Well, of course not. Only in Meyer. Oh. Doesn't count. <laughs> right. Um, but the shield how is a cut from above, and actions from above should be made from the right when you begin the fight. That's like right at the beginning of the gloss. Okay. And the, these shield howls are only done as the initiating attack. I'm, I'm trying to avoid saying Vorschlag here, Ray. But like that first action as you enter into the onset. There, you're never told to just like, okay, so you attack, he parries, clang, 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 and then you land a shield how, or go for a shield how. Well, basically not, although there is one weird play from Ring Egg which kind of is um, that ish, or could be, or could not be, which we'll talk about in a minute, I guess. Um, but largely, no, all the actions describing the shield how are describing initiating actions, although that's mostly true of pretty much all of the five cuts. Zornhau is only described as a first action. Tver is mostly described as a first action, apart from the couple of times. Tver is the exception. Uh, Scheidel is only described as a first action. Krimp is only described really as a first action or as a response, immediate response. And even with Tver, it's first action or first follow-up is most of the plays. Okay. Yeah, I think once you're like deep in the Krieg, and you're like winding and cutting around and parrying and like all that close in stuff. And like you land a hit with the short edge that came down from above. At that point, like what you call that cut, I don't think really matters. Because the purpose, like the, you know, you think of a shield how and you think of it serving a specific purpose, which is like cutting against an incoming cut or like cutting against long point or whatever. And if you're just landing a final hit, then there's no specific purpose that it's serving. Like, that could just be any cut. That's my opinion, anyway. I don't know if that's how the Glossators saw it, but if they, no matter how yeah, they saw it, I mean, they like, chose not to write it down. So, I mean, like, later on, I don't know, a bit of my brain's like, later on, maybe things got, became a game where there's less of this opening clash of blows and more more of sitting in distance doing these uh doing the Krieg and that's when you start seeing fifteen different flavors of named cuts because there's because that kind of that context that part of the game was being explored more. I don't know. Well the author of three two two seven A tells us that there are people making names for a ton of variations on the cuts already. And they're just yeah, Reichmeisters. So. That's true. But uh, if you look at uh, Wallerstein, that's all from the bind. That's the that's the binding game. That's the 1930s era epee where you, 
it's a dishonorable Where you go to for not double leg takedown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they allow that in 1930s FA, I have to say. <laughs> it would have been a better game if they did. <laughs> yeah. One thing I find interesting about this um, play, which I think we touched on a little bit earlier, is especially with Ringek, uh, Ringek's version of this, it imply it or it can be read to imply that you're engaging, you're cutting onto the blade first, and then you're doing a step as the following action or as a second part of the action, which is an interesting kind of potential clue about timing and the specific way you execute the action here. Instead of it being like I'm going to throw the point directly into their like chest as my action, and it will incidentally hit their sword on the way. You can arguably read Ringek as I'm going to cut onto their sword, and as my cut comes onto their sword, I'm going to shoot the point forward and step. I don't think that works, but maybe. Have you gotten that to work in sparring? Uh, not recently, but my shield heart doesn't work anymore. I went out of the shield heart oh, phase and it stopped working. Right. Oh, no. Quick head count. Who's in the shield heart phase? Who isn't? <laughs> I was like what? two years ago. I, I'm not in my shield half phase either. I hate the yeah. shield half. What? My Why? shield half phase was like four years ago, I think. I still love it. I just can't use it anymore. It stopped working. Because the Zorn has better in every situation. <laughs> I have my Zorn half phase. Well. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but it looks less fancy. Or oh, fancy. <laughs> yeah, the shield is how you win technical prizes, right, Johanna? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, burn. <laughs> Let me just look at my vast collection of technical fencing prizes. Oh, oh wait. Oh. Well, Joey, actually, Joey actually has a technical fencing prize, so... <laughs> so wait, Joey, are you in your shield health phase? I, I have been okay. The the shield was the first of the <coughs> hidden hues <laughs> um, I learned, and I really loved it. So I I, I fenced for like two years and only used the shield at all. Or like I I I don't think during that time I ever used the zwierhau or anything. I was just mainly using the shield I stopped doing it because just as T said, um, at some point it just stopped working. I think I'm in my Krumpau phase right now. Hmm. Good, that's yeah, where I am. From a bind. I didn't know there was such thing as a Krumpau phase. Oh, there is. I'm definitely <laughs> in the Krumpau phase. Well, it's I'm the one you win it. technical prizes with. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm against I the Krumpau phase. I keep, I keep waiting for my Scheidelhau phase and it never comes. <laughs> so, so, so we could divide it into like, the Scheidelhau phase is the counter-attack phase, right? <laughs> then the the Zornhau phase is like the the parry repost phase. No, these are all fake phases. You're making all of them up. There's <laughs> <laughs> only the Shilhau phase. And then the the Krumpau phase is like the the getting a bind phase. And soon we'll get onto the Scheifelhau phase in next week's episode. Hey, about how about that? that? How about that? Like the Entwisthau phase. What's that one? That's the, the that's the yeah, that's fair. The Becker phase. I can't remember what all the crazy messer cuts uh, are, and isn't there a yeah. sixth one? Yeah, the Vinker. Yeah, the Vinker. How? The Vecker, I think, is the Crump. Yeah. 
Although speaking of the shield half phase, this is actually probably the best place to talk about. But at this point, we've got the sh we've got actions for the shield which deal with pretty much every beginning thing somebody can feasibly do. If they are short, you can throw the shield. If they are in long point, you can throw the shield. If they are thrusting at you, you can throw the shield. If they are cutting at you, you can throw the shield. If There's they're not... in retracted guards, then you can throw a... throw a shield. There's yeah. really very few actions that somebody can initiate the engagement with, which are not in one of those categories. What about if their hands are super low and their blade withdrawn? Well, then they're in Flug, just in the wrong like. Glass. No, no, in in, in Alba, I mean. Yeah, but that's Flug. <laughs> <laughs> Is it so, though? Uh, <laughs> I don't think I can argue with that because it doesn't right now, make sense. Does one target Flug? Well, it's definitely it's definitely Flug because three two seven A says that position is Flug, so you can totally attack it with a shield how. Hmm. Yeah. That I'm pressing sense. F to doubt right now. What are uh, <laughs> what are Hans Madel's fear for Zetsen? It's very how counters like three of them, right? Yeah, well, he has. We'll, we'll get there. We'll, we'll let's save that for the <laughs> for a surprise. Oh, are we gonna are we gonna talk about the other play here? Squint to the head and hit the hands. I was about yes, to say. I definitely was going to. <laughs> how, how many times do we land that? Come on, guys. Uh, like, that one's great. I nearly broke a dude's thumb with that once. <laughs> then nice. the next time I fenced him, he brought a sword with rings. The bastard. Hey, you were supposed to hit his head, not his hands. No, I faked it his head, oh, wait, hit him in right. the hands. Right. Sorry, I, I was backwards. It's the ring version. I did the ring version perfectly from the gloss. The next time I fenced him, he had rings and beat me. Hey, will you describe <laughs> the ring version? Hmm? Will you describe the ring version for our listeners? Sure. So ring version, the the couplet here is squint to the head if you want to hit the hands or if you want to harm or ruin or whatever you want to translate it as. I'm not sure what the German word is. Um, but ring says when they want to cut from above, so act like you're going to hit them in the head, cut with the short edge against their cut, and strike him on the blade with your point to the hands, um, as Stan's pictured in this terrible picture in Glasgow. Awesome how, how do you get a bind and hit them in the hands? Is it like a super plunging shield, huh? Yeah, so it's a kind of complicated thing. Um, there's a nice parallel here to the way Ringex sets up some of the plays like the Kurtzhau, where they're planning to cut and you act like you're going to do a thing, so you convince them to abort their cut somehow, or to change their cut from the, the idea you're selling at them. So the way I, the way I teach this to people for the Ringex play is that the, you reckon they're going to cut, so you want to kind of sell them on the idea that you're going to try and smash them in the head as soon as they cut. Um, and that probably will make their cut be a kind of more shortened parry type action. And you bind onto that with the short edge and then plunge over to the thumb. And you can get kind of the the right thumb or the potentially the right forearm or the back of the left hand, depending on exactly the relative length of swords and position of people are your kind of available targets off that position. Um, but it engages on the blade and then hooks over. If it wasn't for the... Uh... The gloss saying, strike him at his sword's blade, then this would be the, uh, th this would be the, uh, counterattack to the hands that we all wish existed. Yeah, yeah, so, so you faint to a deep target and actually hit the shallow target. Yeah. Yeah, but I read this as being faint to the deep target and engage on the blade and hook over onto the shallow target. It comes down deep. at a very steep angle onto the onto the thumb and works quite nicely. But the illustration to this 
doesn't have blade on blade bind. It has something else as if you've bounced off the bind and then cutting down onto. It looks like a rising cut. Of... Yeah, well, I, I really in. like the the Slovak footwork going on. Whatever the hell that is. What? This is the illustration of the guy in the stripy trousers, right? With the Slovak footwork? Yes, the guy uh, in the stripy trousers. Uh, some old Martin Fabian, I think it was his Scheiselhauer video, had some really fun, like, flicking the back leg out and rising up with the front leg before executing the, the attack type <laughs> footwork. So, yeah, so arguably what you could be doing here is something a bit like, based on that picture, is something a bit like the um, uh, the Fiore play where you cut to the left hand, or the, um, uh, what's it? In the Zecker, the left has a cut to the left hand, doesn't he? Yep. Where you cut forward and then you kind of hit their sword and come off the bind with a cut to the left arm. But you're playing on the fact that they're expecting you to cut at their head and are going to give you a are going to try and stop that action so you can work to a new target instead of just getting hit in the face by their cut. I just want to take a moment to point out that in this illustration, the guy doing the shield how is definitely not pushing on the, the flat of the shield with the pad of their thumb. <laughs> I know that I'm like a dog with a bone that just can't let go of it. But Yeah. Can we talk about the good one now? What do you mean? This one, the the rank one is great. Uh, this it works this really is a high well. percentage play that okay. T did once. Okay. <laughs> like no, it seriously is a an effective action of somebody who's expecting you to cut strongly against their cut and is trying to win the bind on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're good at doing powerful cuts and engaging strongly in binds, um, you can often land this because people will give you the the cue you need to do that action. But we can now talk about the other inferior version. Okay. Okay, so the other version, the one against long point, the other the one that's also against long point. So this is like to me it seems like the opposite. Like I think uh Michael mentioned this before, but it's like the opposite of the other one. Instead of squinting to the point and instead of squinting shallow and hitting deep, now you're squinting deep and hitting shallow. So I guess the way I do this is if they're in long point, you know, you kind of act like you're going for a deep target and then they'll they might make like a parrying motion of some kind. So there's a couple of options they have for like a parrying motion. One is to like bring the tip up and kind of leave their hands down low. And if they bring their tip up like that, they expose the bottom of their hands, which is a pretty easy target to hit, especially if they're wearing modern gloves. And the other possible thing is they could be kind of doing a winding motion up into left ox to try to do an obsetsen. And if they do that, then this kind of turns into a uh, like the opposite of the crumpow type thing. And I think it even says um, with the point onto his hands. So there's kind of a callback to throwing the point upon the hands, I feel. Mm. Anybody have anything to add to that? As far as getting this to work, I think... I mean, the the general idea of aiming for a deep target and then hitting 
to a shallow target, I do all the time. Yeah, yeah, but but like when I do it, I'd basically do like a, a broken tempo action where you launch an attack as if it's going to the head, but in fact cut short and just tag them on the forearm. Yep. Like, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't bring any of this inverted hand nonsense into it. That's just complicating the idea. Yeah. Yeah, usually so, I'll like faint like an overhaul to the head and then pull it back and hit to the right forearm, I guess, if they're right-handed, as they go up to block the yeah. overhaul. Uh, but I, I think I'd tag their, their left one, because I'll do it on the same side. You go on the same side. side but just, like, drop the, the angle of the cut. Gotcha. Or if they came up to parry, then I'd, um, and the blades met, then I'd do a, a disengaging cut to the, the left side. Yeah, I think that's the same idea. This is just they wanted to use the shield house, so they're using it. So there's an interesting um, note here from Talhofer, where so I, I made a note to bring up the Schiller meets Scheidler line from the Zedel, which we know from records of the Mark Spooter fencing guild was part of their test. You had to know the Schiller meets Scheidler. But it's not really covered any of the glosses that we in the RDL gloss. Um, Hans Madel covers it, but also Ring uh, tries to address it, and he introduces it into this play, um, where he suggests that you're in his modification of the title that you're actually fainting a Scheidelhau and then doing your Schielhau to the hands. Um, so he says to cock your eye towards his part and act as if you will strike there. So cock your eye towards his scheitel, his skull or his part, or however you translate that. Act as if you will strike him there, but instead strike him with the cock eye with your point on the hands, how you sort of modifies it, which is an interesting tie to the next section that we're going to talk about. So I, I totally agree that you'd be fainting like a scheitel how to the head. But then if they were coming up to parry that scheitel how, I can't see how... An inverted hand downward strike would improve your odds compared to just a free cut to the arm. Because surely, if they're coming up to parry that that shuttle hound, then their cross guard would be on in the way. Inverting your sword doesn't achieve anything. That's true. This is in in the rank one where the like lifting your turning your sword over allows your point to come below your hands. Uh, in a way that isn't very easy if you have a normal a normal grip with a long edge cut. And you can do that and lift your hands up to hook your point down over even quite a high parry. So you're doing like a, a plunge cut, a stir yeah, plunging kind of action off the, um, uh, off the bind. I think that also helps if they're going into an ox type position. You can lift your hands up and drop the point lower so you can get over their cross guard. Unless they have... Uh, Side rings on their sword, then you need to think of a new plan. Well, yeah, side <laughs> rings should be illegal. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Free service to anyone who wants to fix it, by the way. We can like find you someone nearby with an angle grinder to cut the rings off your sword so you can yeah. learn defense properly. Why would you want a historical sword? <laughs> I used to be really into side rings, and now I don't use any swords with side rings because... No side rings are a lot easier to transport. You can transport them in a flat container and you can put many of them in there. 
I, I can appreciate the argument from laziness there, but I like my complex hilt, and I have a golf case which has plenty of room for it. So, so years ago, I went to Skunks and Ribnik in Poland, and the competition that year had a bunch of check fences show up with like massive swords with huge side rings. So I was like, yeah, I'm gonna buy a, a heavy Trinava from Regenie with a single side ring and just like beat them in every single bind. And I showed up to the same competition the the next year, and they found no. side rings. So. Yeah. <laughs> so that served me right and now I just think they're, they're a cr- crutch didn't yeah, that I... sword break your shoulder yeah uh, <laughs> but basically it's it's the classic thing of trying to swing a too heavy sword and doing like how things and trying to break the action just gives you rotator cuff issues through like everybody that does long sword too much gets rotator cuff issues right well, I, I failed to see how side rings are more of a crutch than big heavy gauntlets, but that's just me. Because if you get hit on a big heavy gauntlet, it's a point for the other person. So give them a point if you get hit in the side ring. Who cares? Yeah, do that. That's, that's fine. Works. <laughs> like, I'm totally in favor of doing that thing. Or, I don't know, if you want to go the other direction, then just don't score hand hits and you're, you're golden. I don't care what you do, but... I think that any hand protection that someone wants to use should be allowed because hands are important, yo. Yeah, I don't have anything, you know, intrinsically against side rings. I think they're fine. I just don't want to use them myself. I don't think my opponent's cheating if they use them or anything. I just have to figure out... Now that I have the program, I'll be able to use more kinds of swords without fearing broken fingers, but I like my complex hilt. Even so. Uh, For for me, it's... It's that I'm very much like I want to design a game that tests fencing skill. And if some guy goes out and buys her again, a heavy Trinava with a side ring so that they can just ignore protecting their hands, then they're not really developing the, the skill set uh, that I'd like to see. They're relying sure, on th- a, an artifact. I agree that relying on the side rings as a defensive measure, while historical, may warp the fencing. But if you fence as though you didn't have side rings and just expect them to protect your hand, then you're probably still fine. Yeah. The So the specific thing I feel about side rings is largely that. the Like that same idea. People, most of the time when I see people who fence with side rings consistently, they develop fencing habits that depend on the presence of their side rings. Their guards become more extended. Because side rings only cover you in a, a few specific positions of the hand and blade, and they often lean towards using those positions more. So, like, I'll do my cuts at slightly different angles. I'll extend my hands a bit more in guards like Flugerocks. And as soon as you take away their sword rings, they get hit in the hands a lot. So they're clearly depending on them. Whereas if those people, for people who are actually not acting like they have side rings at all, uh, then it doesn't warp. It can potentially not warp their fencing, but counting points against for hits to the side ring is probably a necessary kind of feature of that of that idea to avoid it warping it because otherwise even if you claim you aren't letting it warp your fencing you probably if i can stick my hand six inches further out and not get hit in the hand still i'm gonna let them drift six inches further out because my thrusts are gonna work better yeah like i mean that's a fair argument 
I think that there's that the gear we use already warps our fencing to the degree that it may not be significant. I mean, the fact that your hands are as big as your head in a lot of these gloves warps your fencing. The That's fact fair. that your hands as big as your torso warps your fencing too. So, like the gear, I, I'm not going to say it doesn't warp fencing, but I think that doing the only way that we could not warp our fencing, which would be naked sharps, is also a bad idea. Well, so, that would also warp our fencing. Right, but maybe in the more historical ways. I don't know. I don't know. Everything comes with its own artifacts that you just have to acknowledge. Yeah, what I tend to feel, what I have noticed with a few people with side rings is that, like, if you take someone who fences always with side rings and you give them not side rings, they will suddenly get hit in the hands a lot. For almost everyone I've ever seen who's tried to make that transition, I want to do that experiment now. And like, <laughs> so right, I so we get we get two children. And we raise <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had a guy in my club who'd been fencing for years and he rings and i broke his fetter one uh one time uh so he bought a new fetter without side rings on it and the next time we fence i hit him in the hands like every single exchange hmm. because the way he was cutting and binding was using the side ring to cover his hands and he hadn't even realized it he thought he wasn't but instead he got pounded in the hands a lot so i think it's not it's not automatic but it often happens because Unless you have a feed, a way to understand whether the hit would have hit you in the hands and hit you in the side rings, you just realize that you didn't get hit. So clearly, what you did was fine, right? And and I mean, like simple hilted sword and buckler and complex hilted sword and buckler systems look totally different for a reason. Sure. No, it looks like a Polish guy is hitting the legs. <laughs> oh, of course. Are you sure it doesn't look like Roland doing his uh, Roland Jitsu? <laughs> I, I think that now would be a good time to wrap up this podcast without replying. Actually, I have one more right. thing I want to bring up just for listeners for completeness which is that 3227A adds some extra verses to this section, like it does for a lot of them, but it has an interesting thing um, where it adds a couplet uh, that I translate as cock your eye to the right if you want to fence well, which is not reflected in the gloss, and obviously it doesn't appear in any other versions of the title. But there's a passage in, I believe it's Fechtregeln, which seems to take up the same thing, and it says, understand the cock eye like this, Cock your eye left and strike right, and cock your eye right and strike left, lest you confound him with a joyful face. And Joachim Meyer has the same sort of play that he got groups under the shielhau of just the basic, uh, the really basic idea of the of the eye faint in isolation, which is look left, cut right, look right, cut left. Um, and they think it's an important lesson of the shielhau. So that might have been what three two two seven a was driving at with that verse. Um, but really isolating the, the faint portion of these two teachings and making it into its own play is interesting. But again, really hard to do in a fencing mask. Or at least you can do it, but your opponent probably won't notice. And how does having side rings affect that? <laughs> well, you see, side rings really make you look better. So, Well, you can look through the side ring at the target you're trying to to trying to faint at, right? And then it's really obvious what you're doing, yeah. <laughs> it's like a telescopic sight. 
<laughs> Better aiming. Thanks for listening to the Side Ring podcast. <laughs> All right, so I have a final question then. Who here pays attention to where their opponent is looking while they're fencing? Because I don't. No. no. So I don't. I don't pay attention to where they're trying to look with their eyes. I did, as I mentioned in, I think, the last episode. Um, I do pay attention to where they're kind of... I find there is a a vibe in somebody, like a, a general sense you can get for where their focus is, like high or low and in a rough direction. Are they focused at me and high? Are they focused to my side and low to try and fall on my sword? Are they focused, you know, off to the other side to try and win the bind for the cut they expect I'm about to do? And I do pay attention to that. And typically, if I see they're focused away from me, I'll plan an action like a Dirk Fexel or a Zuken or something where I'm going to deny them blade engagement and hit somewhere else. Versus if I see they're planning to, if their focus feels like it's towards me, um, then I'll do something that is, I'm expecting to engage with their blade and act in front of me. I'm going to give a shout out here to a modern olympic fencing source which is the sydney saber blog i hate modern olympic fencing saber but it, one of their recent articles had a really good description about what it's actually like fencing and that there's just this blurry silhouette in front of you that you you can't make out that much detail on and you're not even focusing particularly on just the kind of way the shape moves you you already learn the patterns have learned the patterns. Yeah, the way I try to, the way I think about this is less that it's like, okay, you know, their foot's there and their hand's there and their hip's there and whatever, and so they're going to try and attack this way and more. In a holistic sense, they're focused. They're, everything, their shape indicates sideways or forward or high or low. Like when somebody's planning to strike low, they often hunch over a bit and you kind of get that vibe off them when they change their intended height of strike. And then you can try and make an action based on it. Cool. That seems like a good point to wrap up. Um, actually, I'll, I'll add the that while I haven't seen a lot of success with eye feints, I've seen a lot of people do similar things with sword feints, where they sort of play around slightly out of distance and try to sell the idea that they're going to cut to a particular target. And I've seen that psych people out in tournaments many times if a person's really good at it, of where they get them in the mindset of protecting a certain target. So you, if even if they can't see where you're looking, they can certainly see where you're sort of gauging with your sword or pretending to. And that works really well if you're trying to sell something really risky like the Scheidelhau, but also works pretty well um, for other strikes. So that could be the way that they modify it when the eyes aren't obvious. Scheidelhau ain't risky. We can talk about that next we'll week. <laughs> <laughs> that's all i have yeah for sure i don't think that anybody's here's going to disagree with the idea of selling a thing <laughs> don't <All> challenge right. <laughs> us. <laughs> well in that case i'll disagree with it <laughs> all right and on that uh very agreeable note it's time to wrap up thank you very much for listening everybody this has been uh, episode 21 of fencing by the book i've been your host mike swordge joining us today has been our disagreeable panel of johanna hopfgardner michael chitterser stephen cheney and tq thank you for listening <laughs>